Today we'll be reading from two passages of scripture. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to John chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Or you could follow along on page 5 in the bulletin. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. John chapter 3, 14 to 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Our second passage is from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is God's word. Father, we commit this time to you. We thank you for Metro. And God, we thank you in advance for the people that you're going to bring and the people that they're going to love big with the gospel. And we pray, God, for those not yet believers. We pray that, God, you would use them in big ways, mighty ways to show off and demonstrate your power. We pray that they would have a robust proclamation and practice that would bring credibility to the gospel and to the church of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray for some great problems. I pray that we would outgrow this room quickly. I pray, God, that you would provide all the financial resources that Metro needs. God, I pray that you would provide fully for Donnie's salary. And I pray, God, for multiple staff and whatever is necessary to make your name the most famous, the most glorified in this city. Would you do it, God? We, cl- we pray and we storm the, st- the throne of grace, pleading and praying that you would move mightily and that you would demonstrate your power yet again in each and every life here. God, we pray for active, intentional, aggressive missionaries that would take ownership of the lostness of the city and that in taking such ownership that they would pray with fervency and that they would preach with power and that they would walk in the perfect in the perfect living God, Jesus, with deep passion for the hurting, the weak, the lost, the wearied, and that you would bring many, not just church hoppers, but converts. I pray that they would see God haters come to be God lovers. And I pray against any enemy that would talk slick and have issues with Metro, but God, that you would protect, guide, and and give power, and a clear runway that they would take off for your glory. 
Have your way now. Bless us in this word. Hide me behind the cross. Might nobody be razzled and dazzled by Doug Loganism, but might they forget my name, but remember the name that's above all names, who is Jesus the Christ. I pray, God, for those that don't know you, that this will be an open place with an atmosphere of grace and an environment of hope that will have people to sit here and be convicted and converted to your name. So, God, would you do it? Meet us as we are. Meet us in our brokenness. Make us whole through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know how good I'm going to do standing still. If I walk around, I'm not leaving. I'm just walking around. John, it was already read, John chapter 3, 14, 15, and 16 When he's lifted up, that's my title, when he's lifted up. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let me do some clarification here to unpack this by way of intro. If, if we look back, this was this conversation was with Nicodemus in chapter three. Nicodemus from the Sanhedrin, he came out by night. He came out creeping, sneaking by night because he didn't want to get caught with a bootleg son of what they would call a harlot talking to him about the miracles and the power of God, Jesus. So he could not be caught in the daytime with Jesus. So he came out at night because he was beat in the head by the reality of his power. So this culminates a conversation he was having with Onicky, Nicodemus. And so if you were to go back, verse chapter 3, verse 5 through 7, he, he uses, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This was the physical illustration. And then if we move on to verse 8 in chapter 3, this was the natural illustration. Just as you don't know where the wind comes from or where it's going, so it is impossible to explain being born of the spirit. Jesus is giving them a, a good Bible study lesson. He's giving the so-called teacher A lesson, Nicodemus. A scriptural illustration was next in verse 14 and 15. So he says, as Moses was lifted up, as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. And I want you to notice that the son of man is the continual theme, the name Jesus most uses. And, And then the conclusion of this conversation is 16 through 21. Jesus now, look at this thing. Jesus now summarizes both subjects of salvation and condemnation after this, which I won't get to. But he talks about, in the culmination of this conversation with Nicodemus, he talks about the persons, this Trinitarian reality. He says, the father gave his son, that's John three sixteen. the father gave his son, the other one is the son will give life to the people. That's good. That's good. So I want to jump in the point of connection between 13 and 14. It lies in the rep- repetition of the son of man. The incarnation under actual circumstances of humanity carried with it the necessity of the crucifixion, carried with it the necessity of the passion. In Doug Logan translation, the reality of the Son of Man having to die was the mandatory reality that without his death, we are doomed. 
He had to die. It wasn't optional. It's not like a sunroof or a non-sunroof that you pick on a car lot. But without his death, we are all going to die. And you know how long it takes to pay for sins? Eternity. That's why hell is for eternity. That's how long it takes to pay off God. Never. So he so Jesus borrows an object lesson from history. I love that. See, see, I love and this first idea. He's 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 given us clarity of the passage and he's helping Nicodemus right in his context. So Nicodemus Sanhedrin, he would have been a studier of the law and Moses would have been his dude. See, Moses was their their main dude in terms of studying the law. So whatever Moses said, they would have been on top of it. So Jesus helps them out right where he is. Jesus says, look, Joker, you here sneaking at night? I'm sleeping. You disturbing me because you're scared to speak to me in the daytime? Let me help you where you are. Isn't it good to know Jesus meets us where we are? I'm so glad about that. He, if you're from Korea, he'll bring you examples that refer to Korea. If you're from India, he'll bring you examples that refer to India. If you're from Patterson, where I'm from, he'll bring you examples that look like guns and murderers and all type of stuff. But he meets us where, he are, where we are and he gets us to where he wants to get us. And that's always in the arms of the father. So Jesus bars an object lesson from history. He said, just like Moses raised the serpent up in the wilderness, he too must be lifted up so that whoever believes on him will have eternal life. The stress of this passage is not some magical healing, but on a bronze serpent as a symbolic of salvation that God offered to all who would look on him and live. This passage is so deeply about healing. You know, we don't fool with healing no more because we got the Benny Hens and all have these bootleg preachers out here who say they're healing and they're healing for money. They are pimps and liars and they're snake oil salesmen and they don't have the power of God. They have the passion for loot. And so, however, we reformed Calvinistic, whatever you want to call us, we so shy away because we don't want association. We don't want association with that. I want to tell you, though, I don't care how bad Benny Hinn messes it up. Jesus still heals. I, I don't, and, and I'm not saying I agree with Benny. I agree with the Bible. That's what I'm saying. I, I agree with what God says. So don't be scared if you're Calvinistic and Reformed and all that cute stuff and Presbyterian to believe that God can heal. And he doesn't just heal flu and cancer, but he heals the sin-sick soul that is without God and without hope. And he heals them with Jesus. He's the great elixir. He's the one who comes in and you only need one dose of him and he brings absolute healing. He doesn't have to be taken until the full dose is out. One dose and you're healed. And so Jesus now is unpacking and unraveling the reality of his healing. He's unpacking the simplicity of his healing, and he's bringing clarity to what Moses was doing and who he is. That's good. I want to tell you, also, Jesus always uses the idea of the Old Testament to point to a spiritual reality. We get stuck on the object and not the person of the, that the object lesson is supposed to teach. So we don't worship no brazen serpent, but the brazen serpent points us to the reality of Christ. So this idea is healing. And then this other idea in here is the lifting up of the Son of Man is a definite statement of Jesus coming 
and his death on the cross. He was telling Nicodemus that his death would provide salvation. There is a divine imperative in the death of Jesus. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Peter preached the necessity of his death, saying, This man was delivered up by a determined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. And that was Peter's great sermon in Acts. The message Peter is banging is the same message Jesus is banging. Death couldn't hold him. And and the grave couldn't lock him down. Satan couldn't handcuff him. But he broke out and broke through so he could get to broken, messed up people who needed healing. He was willing to take all the sickness of life, all the sin sickness, the physical sickness upon himself. And ultimately separation, the sickness of the separation from his father. And die. Kill death. Rise again. So death couldn't kill you. He murdered death that we would have life. And that we would have it eternal. This is what Jesus is pointing to. This is what Jesus is pushing out as he's using his object lesson from from Numbers 21. His death is necessary for our salvation. Eternal life. Eternal life is just not going to heaven. But eternal life starts at the lock and load of conversion. Eternal life is not some afterlife. But it's the life right now. I need to let you know you're as justified if you're saved. If you've been born again, washed by the blood of Jesus. You're as loved as you'll ever be by God. You're as justified as you'll ever be. This is not layaway salvation where you get a piece here and then you get the full package there. Oh, no. He that is in Christ is a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new right now. We serve a right now God, not a bootleg God that promises and has you roll the dice with eternity. Know that you might know him that you might know him and the power of his resurrection right now. I don't know about you, but I feel good about knowing that in my mess, God loves me as much as he will right now. What I have to look forward to is a time where I will worship him in sinlessness, where I won't be interrupted by my sin, where I won't have a consistent identity crisis. J.I. Packer says every time a Christian sins, he's having an identity crisis. So we won't have to worry about that. I won't be hindered by my bills. I won't be hindered by my issues. I won't be hindered by lust and temptation. But what we look forward to is not touching the hem of his garment, but wrapping him up and saying, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. The only Hebrew you're going to need in heaven is hallelujah. Why is the uplifted cross so important? The apostle Paul wrote, God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, Christ died just at the right time while we were, while we were helpless sinners. That's Romans 5, 6. He died for us. He died for the ungodly. He died on our behalf or instead of us. The atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the foundation for the kingdom of God. There is simply no other way to be saved. Christ speaks of lifting up of the son of man. 
for atonement could be made only by one in the nature of him who sinned. He had to come in the form of a man. He had to, contrary to the Gnostics, would say he, he was only an aberration, he was only a ghost. No, he, had, he was 100% man. And I know that's hard to fathom as a man, how we can't go a, a day without sinning. Jesus came in the form of a man, in the likeness of a man, and with, with 100% authority and power of God, but he came as 100% God, and he lived perfectly according to the law. And he deserved eternal life. But yet he chose separation so that the ones who didn't live perfectly to the law could be in unity with the father. That's mission. That's mission. That's love. So the one in him, nature, who him sinned, the only only as a man was God, the God's son capable of taking upon him the penalty resting on the sinner. No doubt there was a specific reason why Christ should here refer to the sacrificial death of lifting up. He says in John 12, how bad am I doing time-wise, Ernie? I'm doing all right. John 12, 32, um, he, he, J- Jesus himself begins to talk about man being lifted up. This is important, this lifting up. Look, and I'll jump on verse 30. Jesus answered, verse John chapter 12, verse 30. Verse 30, starting at verse 30. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I love this word draw. This draw has the idea of being hooked like a fish, but actually not having the hook in your mouth. Isn't that good? It's God just drawing you and sucking you in. And you don't know why you're running to this God. You know you've hated him at some time. You know you've sinned against him. But somehow he draws you. Somehow that anger begins to transform. Somehow God does something. It's a mystery. There's no book about that. There's no 12 steps to that. There's no seminary who's going to tell you the mystical, magical work of God in a person's heart. But I know that I've been saved. The angels in heaven done signed my name. I know it. And the Bible affirms this reality. If I, if I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. Take hope, all men. There's a way that's been made that wasn't there before. <laughs> made, made by the king of kings, the lords of lords. His grand imperial majesty, Jesus the Christ, has made a way for his enemies to become his friends. The death of Jesus is exalted in New Testament preaching. So here now Jesus is explaining the Son of Man must be lifted up. He gives us an Old Testament lesson. He's given us clarity as to it. He also gives us continuity. What he's saying, what he's saying is, listen, listen, he's saying in the New in the Old in the OT, in the Old Testament. Um, This idea of lifting up this serpent, which was cursed, which was the idea of a curse. Now, if you look to this idea of a curse, you'll find healing. That's paradoxical. Crazy. I don't get it. I like it. And so Jesus ultimately becomes a curse like the serpent in, in the garden who led out with the curse. Now we look to Anything that hang on the tree is a curse. So Jesus bore the curse of the fall for all of us. 
And so in the old, so when Moses lifted up the serpent, you looked to this so-called thing that was biting you, this curse, and you found healing in the cursed one almost. You see that imagery? So Jesus bears the wrath for us. He, he gets lethally injected with sins of all humanity for all time, past, present, and future. He becomes a curse for us. And Jesus wasn't sweating going to the cross because of the pain. He was, he, what, he, what, what I believe was his point was he would be separated for the Father if even for a second was his ultimate pain. But his ultimate joy, as the joy was set before him, he would see high people who have committed high treason. He would be calling the exiles back to citizenship. He, he, would, be, he, he, he would be the, the reclaimer of the rebel, the renewer of the damaged. And so he was willing to bear the cross. He was willing to be a curse. And so this continuity, and he's saying what, what Moses did in the Old Testament, it, it goes the same in the new. However, we don't worship the serpent, no sir. But the idea was lifting up, so the serpent being lifted pointed to a spiritual reality. And the spiritual reality, Jesus tells us in Luke 24, all the Bible talks about him. And so we don't have to look hard for Jesus. He's in every verse. We don't have to look hard for Jesus. He's the hero of every verse. He is never the subtext. He is always the main subject and the healer of every verse. The New Testament preaching thus calls now for the foolishness of preaching for those who are perishing, but those who are being saved, it's the power of God. There's something about the message of the cross. It throbs, it acts, it produces and it results. We glory in the uplifted cross of Jesus because it is the power of God to bring healing to the sin-sick soul. We preach Christ crucified was the theme of the apostolic preaching in the New Testament. Without the cross, we die in eternal death. And the Jews were looking for a Messiah who would be lifted up, but elevated in a manner altogether different from, the, from, from what the Lord mentions here. They expected him to be elevated to the throne of David. But before this, he must be lifted upon the cross of shame, enduring the judgment of God upon his people's sin. So they were looking for somebody with some military swag to come in and just take out the Romans, chop off some heads, take some names, change the sign over the temple, change the sign over the government, change it from Rome to David, and they can go on wilding like they were. But Jesus came as the shepherd, as Mashiach. He came as Messiah. He didn't just come to take down the physical enemies, but he came to kill death and the devil so that you and I would have a way and eternal life with him. He came to slay the enemies that would slay us. He came to, he came to conquer the enemy with enemy, that booger named me. That's what he came to do. But how could the serpent actually typify the Holy One of God? The serpent not... The serpent did not and could not typify his perfect character and perfect life. The, per, the, the, the brazen serpent only foreshadowed Christ as he was lifted up. The lifting up manifestly pointed to the cross. What was the serpent? It was a reminder of the emblem of the curse. But the cross pointed to the Holy One, the incarnate 
Jesus to Christ. Galatians 3.13, we're told that Christ has redeemed us, that's my King James, from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. There was no flaw then in the type. The foreshadowing was perfect. A serpent was the only thing in all nature which could actually prefigure the crucified Savior made a curse for us. I got a few things as I close. Got a few minutes. Cool. For all that I've said and all what the text has taught, it will be evident that when God told Moses to, to make a serpent of brass, fix it upon a pole, and bid and tell the, the bitten people, the bitten Israelites to look on it and they should live, that he was preaching to them the gospel of his grace. We would now point out seven things which these Israelites were told to do, were not told to do. So we understand that Jesus gives the Old Testament idea of clarity and continuity from the Old Testament, lifting up the serpent, just like Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up to find healing. They found healing when the serpent was lifted up. You'll find physical healing. You'll find spiritual healing and physical healing in the lifting up of the Son of God. But here's what he, they were not told to do. They were not told to manufacture some ointment as that means of, of, as a means of healing for their wounds. They were never told that. They were not told to look inside themselves, but look away from themselves. They were not told to minister to others who were wounded in order to get relief for themselves. They were not told to fight the serpents. If some of our, if some of our new theologians had been present that day, they would have urged Moses to organize a society for extermination of serpents. But of what use had that been to those who were already bitten and dying? They were not told to make an offering to the serpent on the pole. God did not ask for a payment. He didn't take an offering from them to return for their healing. No, indeed, grace ceases to be grace if any price is paid for what it brings. God does not ask the sinner to give anything but to receive his Christ. They were not told to pray to the serpent. And their plead with God. For pardoning mercy. They were not told to look at Moses. They had been looking to Moses and urging him to cry to God on their behalf. And when God responded, he took their eyes from off Moses and commanded them to look at the brazen serpent. Moses was the lawgiver, and how many today are looking to him for salvation? They are trusting in their own imperfect obedience to God's commandments to take them to heaven. In other words, they are depending on their own works. But Scripture says emphatically, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. They were not told to look at their wounds. That's what we do. Some think they need to be more occupied with the work of examining their own wicked hearts in order to promote that degree of repentance, which they deem a necessary qualification for salvation. But as well, an attempt to produce heat by looking at the snow. It doesn't make sense. You look at your wounds for healing. That's like looking at the snow to make it melt. Or light into darkness, or light, just, just looking at the darkness is going to make it light. And there's no way you can look to salvation by looking to yourself. You can't make the snow melt with your eyes. 
and you can't get to the Father with your thoughts. It takes atonement. It takes a savior to have the divine initiative to move on the dead sinner to change his heart, to turn his heart, that he might look to the cross and find hope and healing only in one name, in the name of Jesus. My last idea, I got three, I got four minutes. And so with all that lifting up, with all that history lesson, we had clarity, we had continuity. And now let's talk about the calling of this lifting up. He says it clearly in John 6, 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, um, this is my King James again, begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The emphasis Jesus is making is that salvation comes through believing. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should be able to boast. Salvation does not come through some magical formula. It comes by simple faith, looking up to the cross of Jesus and believing that he died in your place on the cross. There is no other way. Acts 4.12 says this is salvation in no no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which they must be saved. There is no other name that you can call upon to be saved. There's no other person anywhere. There is none like him. You can search for all eternity long and you'll find that there is none like him. We sing in Christ alone. Our hope is built. No scheme of man, no power of hell can ever pluck me from his hand. I want to tell you today, if you're hurting, if you're struggling, if you're wondering about acceptance, if you're wondering about if you're broken and messed up in your relationships, if you're dealing with financial crisis, if you're dealing with some power decisions, if you're struggling and wondering if you believe in the gospel, I want to tell you in the name of Jesus and Christ alone is salvation all other ground is sinking sand drop what you're doing repent and call on the name of Jesus it's the name that's above all names it's the name that makes demons run it's the name that all healing is in it's the name of the redeemer of so let the redeemed of the Lord say so he says it's the only name that you can claim when you stand before God at this end time this is our eschatological hope this is our eschatological reality is that the sum of all things that only those in Christ will be able to stand only those in Christ will be able to walk in the authentic eternal healing of God in glory with him as we stand to worship our king I look forward to that day as he's given us life that we will crack open a 2,000-year-old bottle of wine with him, fresh in the kingdom. What a banquet. What a party that's going to be. What a great day we look for in this mess, in this world of death and dying, of murder and rape. We have something to look forward to. We look forward to being with the king. We look forward to being invited to the great banquet, the banquet of the lamb. We look forward to toasting and raising a toast to our king Jesus. We look forward to the eternal life. And we have nothing in ourselves to look to. So we look outside ourselves into this imputation that Jesus has given us. He's come from outside of us to give us life. And it's in him and him alone. There's no demon that can convince me otherwise. There's no sickness that can talk me out of it. There's no preacher that can lie to me to remove me or move me. Herman Boving says that the one who believes, he can never be totally or finally lost. Take hope today that Jesus is a preserving God. He's one that to keep you. When you don't feel like being kept, he gives eternal life to all those who call on him by faith. That's what he does. The object of our faith must always be the Lord Jesus.